Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Uh, it was 125 years ago today uh, when Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, was, I think it's still to this point, right, the only city in America that saw a coup occur. It's true. I want to bring on a couple of uh, gentlemen here. The first is Greg DeGug. He is uh, the producer of a film called In the Pines and also Dr. Troy Kickler, um, uh, who was uh, with the Carolina Journal. He's written a piece here at the Carolina Journal about the Wilmington coup. Welcome, uh, Greg. How are you first? Let me start with you, Greg. Oh, great. Thanks for having us, Pete. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Kickler, um, uh, how are you affiliated with the film? Oh, uh, well, th- thanks for having me sure. on, on your show. I'm affiliated with the film as I, I serve as a historical consultant. Gotcha. Okay. I want to make sure I got it right before I just uh, uh, made something up about you. Maybe, you know, I've okay. giving you too much credit or too little. So, all right. Um, so, let, first off, uh, Greg, how did you, uh, you come up with the idea for this movie, and what is it about? Uh, so, we were trying to... Uh, get people really interested in North Carolina history as part of the North Carolina History Project at the John Locke Foundation. And we just brainstormed, you know, what should be one of the first historical pieces we tried to uh, tackle. And in doing our research, we came across this, uh, this story of the, the Wilmington coup, the only coup to ever take place in uh, the United States. And then as we did our research about it, we found out that the, the, in the lead-up to the coup, um, the, it was started um, in about 1896 when uh, uh, the, some uh, Republicans in North Carolina teamed up with black North Carolinians and populists to unseat the Democrats from power um, for the first time since Reconstruction. And the, the, the Democrats, in order to get power back and divide this uh, uh, union of uh, uh, this political union, they came up with what they called their white supremacy campaign. Uh, and that was a, a campaign of propaganda and violence. Uh, they got together with the News and Observer at the time um, to, to win back statewide power. And that, 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 that summer of uh, violence and propaganda culminated in the end in the, um, the coup of Wilmington. Um, and we, the, the more we read about the story, it was just wild and insane um, stuff and so we're like, i can't believe nobody knows about this so that's how we got started with the story so uh uh dr kickler you're as a historian uh, and i read your piece at the carolina journal called understanding the context of the wilmington coup 125 years later uh and i was uh, i had not put it into the broader context that you start spelling out in your piece you talk about um the uh how americans had conquered the frontier right the jim crow era uh, uh america becoming more urban uh, U.S. becoming more of a professional, uh, having a professional class, these various associations, and uh, then also as an emerging global power. So why is it important to view uh, to view the, the coup in terms of these other contexts? 
Well, I think, well, first of all, <clears throat> it's part of the historian's trade to uh, put things in con- con- context. So that's how I'm inclined to think about things. But it, but uh, also, I think it's it's important because this event, one of the uh, uh, most violent events in North Carolina history, occurred in as sort of a, 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 a second generational era of good feelings among. Americans. Uh, America's becoming a glo- glo- global power. America's gone from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Um, America's a player on the in- international scene. And within all of these uh, supposedly good things, uh, this tragic event occurs. And it just happens to occur at the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. So what happened? What what happened in Wil- Wilmington? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Alex Manley, who was the editor of the Wilmington Day, Daily Record, was writing his opinion pieces, which infuriated many. Um, and so uh, um, they wanted to essentially to punish Alex Manley. So what happened on November 10th, 125 years ago, is that a mob, including red shirts, which were reminiscent of the Klan, who tried to intimidate voters uh, at the at the polls, uh, uh, burned his editorial offices and they drove out many of the uh uh, of of the republican officials in the town and then many uh african americans fled the city afterwards and they moved uh more inland if you will to like greensboro and raleigh and so forth but they fled the city and uh in short uh, um a, a white controlled democratic party took over uh, authority of the town. And uh, murdered people, as I understand, right? Do we know how many people were murdered? No, no. I've tried to uh, uh, um, get an exact number, so I can't give, give, give you that. But I can tell you in which the piece that I wrote today, I mean, there's a disparity in the numbers, but sources vary, and they say anywhere from 60 to 250 people. So... Uh, uh, the most specific I can tell you is a lot. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and they... I, I, yeah, go ahead, Greg. The, the city of Wilmington went from about being 50% black, um, you know, so it, there, was a, there was the massacre and killing, um, but also many people left after that, and it really sort of destroyed the city. The city was a really, like, vibrant, diverse, you know, multiracial city. Um, and then after that event, most all the black people obviously left, and I think their numbers went from, like, 50% of the population to something like 20 25%. So, like, it was a mass exodus after that. Right. And um, as I understand it, right, this helped to usher in, <clears throat> in the state of North Carolina, a century of Democrat control at the state level. Uh, you mentioned the News and Observer, right, the, the publishing uh, family that ran that paper. They remained in control and uh, of publishing for, you know, decades after that. And so, like, this uh, this history was was long i mean it got it got put deep into the soil here in in north carolina for 100 years 125 years um so when you were when you were finding this out were you surprised that as to how few people knew about the this riot the massacre the coup that uh i, I don't know are you from north carolina were you ever taught about any of this in school yourself yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I grew up in, in Raleigh, and I, I had never heard anything about this. I was a relatively good student, and, you know, I, I, I don't recall um, us getting any of this in our history classes. And I think, you know, I just heard about it offhandedly, and I think it was maybe on, like, a sign or something the first time I heard about it in Wilmington, you know, on one of those placards, <clears throat> history placards. Um, but it's, it's, I, think, I think it might have, have to do with, the, you know, the people who... Um, orchestrated the white supremacy campaign, they they launched themselves into power. Uh, 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 Acock be, uh, became a, a governor of North Carolina and started our you know the public school system we have today. And um, Josephus Daniels ended up going on to uh, you know be rewarded with really great positions of power in the federal government. Um, I think he was Secretary of the Navy and uh, Ambassador to Mexico under FDR. Um, but but I think it just, be, in addition to the, the fact that it was powerful people who, you know, used uh, violence to to gain, you know, even more power, there was also, I think, there's an uncomfortability when people go back and read the history and find out that the Democratic Party did this stuff, which sort of doesn't jive with the, uh, the reality today. Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely doesn't help <laughs> when selling the brand. Um so uh, last question I have for you, uh, Greg, is the um, where people can see this movie, um, because as I understand it, it's it's not a full-length feature film, right? It's a short film, but you guys, congrats, by the way, on all of the awards you guys have been piling up on this um, as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where can people see it? How do they see it? Uh, so uh, let's see, tomorrow, tomorrow night it will be at the Fuquay Film Festival in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Um, and it's still continuing its film festival run. Um, there'll be a screening of it as well uh, tomorrow night in Wilmington, North Carolina at Citizen Studios. And then um, if, if anybody is interested in seeing it uh, when, when it's finally released, they can go to inthepinesfilm.com and just stay, stay, um, uh, um, and just follow that, follow that website and uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And as soon as it's released, um, it'll be available for download and for uh, uh, streaming. All right. Well, sounds good. The name of the movie is In the Pines. The website is inthepinesfilm.com. Uh, thank you to my uh, to both of my guests, uh, Greg DeDug, who is the producer of the film, and also uh, Dr. Troy Kickler, historian for the film. Thanks so much for your time, guys, and good work on the project. Oh, thank, thank you, so you sir. All right. Take care. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? 125 years ago today, the Wilmington race riot, as I first uh, heard it called, but yeah, it wasn't really a race riot. It was a coup. And it was a coup with the intent of overthrowing what was called the fusion government. And the fusion government was white Republicans with black Republicans, black voters, so whites and blacks voting together the, there was the Populist Party, and then there was the Republican Party, and they realized that, hey, if 
like we don't run against each other. We'll all vote for each other and we'll, you know, if you got a populist running for an office, we'll back your guy. And if you got a Republican voting uh, running over there, we'll back your guy. And then we'll be able to oust the Democrats. In his book, Rob Christensen writes, it's the, the name of the book is called The Paradox of Tar Heel Politics. And this is in the prologue. And by the way, Rob Christensen, this was the longtime uh, News and Observer columnist, the guy who covered the John Edwards campaign but could never figure out who Riel Hunter was. Right? All of that? Okay, so that Rob Christensen. Anyway, he wrote a big book about the paradox of Tar Heel politics and stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a good book. I've, I've, I've read virtually all of it by this point. Um, I, well, it's one of those things I read it and then I do something else and then I got to come back and pick it up. But anyway, in no place, he writes, in North Carolina was the racial temperature any higher than in Wilmington, the state's largest and most important city at the turn of the century. Blacks outnumbered whites... 11,324 to 8,731. So there were 3,000 more blacks than whites in Wilmington. It was regarded as one of the best cities for African-Americans in the South with a substantial black middle class that shared in the city's political power. The reforms, because remember, this is after the Civil War. right? A lot of Democrats got banned from participating in, in government, right? So you had a lot of you had the rise of a lot of um, uh, politicians, black politicians. You had the rise of the Republican politicians because they had been, you know, on the outs when Democrats ran everything. And so here they were, you know, 20 years later, and they're they're enjoying political success. The reforms of the fusion fusionist legislature had returned local control to Wilmington, ending 15 years of Democrat controlled government. The new mayor and six of the ten aldermen, including two blacks, were fusionists in Wilmington. Mayor and six out of ten council members, aldermen, fusionists. Blacks worked on the police force, in the fire department, and as mail carriers. There was a black justice of the peace, a black deputy clerk of court, coroner, superintendent of streets, the rabble-rousing leader of the white supremacist forces in Wilmington was Waddell, a former Confederate cavalry officer who served four terms in Congress. Um, and in the fall of 1898, Waddell addressed a meeting of about 50 leading white citizens, telling them that rather than waiting for the next municipal election of 1899, the fusionist Wilmington government should be overthrown and white supremacy restored immediately. Quote, we will never surrender to a ragged raffle of Negroes, even if we have to choke the Cape Fear River with carcasses, he said. That's a pretty explicit call to murder. No. In the days leading up to the election, there were a series of marches and, quote, white man's rallies in Wilmington. Paramilitary units were formed that included veterans of the, the very recent Spanish-American War. White groups purchased Gatling guns. Uh, newspapermen from across the country gathered in Wilmington in the days before the election in anticipation of the impending, quote, revolution. Two days after the election, a group of 500 heavily armed white men gathered at the courthouse and began marching towards 
Alexander Manley's newspaper office. And by the time they reached the office, the crowd had grown to 2,000. They ransacked the newspaper office, poured kerosene on the floor, and set it on fire. Manley had already fled the city days earlier after receiving a warning from a prominent white man that he was about to be lynched. Returning to the armory, the white mob then comes across a group of 25 black men. Some of them were armed. A police officer moved between the two groups, urged the blacks to disperse. What happens next is not clear, but a shot rang out. A white man fell wounded in the arm, and then gunfire erupted. Six black men were killed, two instantly. A running gun battle breaks out throughout the city. Fire bells start going off. White vigilantes quickly move into the black section of town with their, quote, weapons of mass destruction, a Gatling gun drawn by two horses. They had cannons. How many people died in that ensuing violence? Probably never be known. The New York Times reported the deaths of nine black men. News and Observer reported 11. Waddell said about 20 were killed. The coroner reported 14. State study published in 2006 said other evidence indicates that the total number of deaths was as high as 60. Panic spread throughout Wilmington's black community, and at least 500 blacks fled the city to the nearby woods and swamps in fear of their lives. 125 years ago today. When we are tired, we are attacked by ideas we conquered long ago. Ashley was a real Southern lady, kind and brave. Sam was one of us, but we lost the election that day. Acock believed in his bones that blacks would always be inferior to whites. That it was his racial duty to educate us. My father's paper was the only black daily in all the nation. He was the only one standing up to the Democrats and their lies. one more thing I gotta do. You promised we would leave today, Sam. We waited until the election was over, and it's over, Sam. Well, what are we gonna do? The Democrats violently overthrew a sitting government. Hundreds of black people were slaughtered. Can you say that again? Only this time use the word white supremacists. In the Pines is the name of the movie. InThePinesFilm.com is the website. That's the trailer for it, InThePinesFilm.com. And the woman you heard there was an actress named Pandora Broadwater. Uh, She stars as uh, the main character in the story, Scarlett Manning. Now, they've changed because the the actual newspaper man, Alex Manley was his name, in Wilmington. They've changed her last name to Manning. Uh, But she is essentially the narrator of the story, And she's doing this interview for a documentary in like the 1960s. So she's so she's telling the story about what happened in 1898 as an old woman. And then they transport you back in time to 1898 uh, to show you the story. So that's that's why you heard that documentary. Oh, could you say it except say white supremacists, right? Because Scarlett Manning is telling her tale to a less than forthright camera crew in the mid 1960s. So there's a little bit of, you know, the story is one of lost youth, political intrigue, racism, obviously. And uh, the movie was done, you heard both of uh, my guests uh, 
Troy Kickler and Greg DeDug, and uh, they are both affiliated with the John Locke Foundation. They got funding uh, to do this this movie through a grant, and I remember when they were developing it, they were shooting it down in Wilmington, so they they got a lot of uh, you know actual old buildings that they were able to utilize and stuff. And, and of course, Wilmington has a uh, a pretty well developed, uh, very well developed film industry. So there was a lot of people. There were a lot of people down there who could do the makeup and the costumes and stuff. So the movie itself is only about twenty minutes. It's a short, and it's one. I mean, it's won a ton of awards. It's got like a Paris Play Film, uh, uh, Nyack International Film Festival, best short, yeah, the best short film it won, best performances, best costumes, best makeup, best set design. Um, so they've been winning a lot of awards for the for this movie. But I remember when it was first being uh, produced and filmed, and they started getting attacked by media in the state why why would they why would they get attacked by media in north carolina now if i were a cynic i might suggest that some of the people that work at the raleigh news and observer or the mcclatchy papers were none too happy to see their organization tied to the true historical accurate record right of how Josephus or Josephus Daniels, whatever his name was, uh, the founder of the paper, how he uh, and, the, you know, this this big wig in politics and stuff that he big time Democrat, that he had helped wage a propaganda war and foment the violence. And then helped to uh, solidify Jim Crow laws in North Carolina for decades to come. Right. The 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 newspapers in this state helped keep Democrats entrenched in power for a century and a half through violence. Let me go back to this. By the way, I mentioned it before. I will say it again. The name of the book is called The Paradox of Tar Heel Politics, The Personalities, Elections, and Events That Shaped Modern North Carolina. And it's written by Rob Christensen, The Paradox of Tar Heel Politics. Um in the prologue, when he's talking about uh, some of the biggest events, he write, he does a sort of a briefer write up. He has more of it, uh, more you know, uh, pages dedicated to the events of Wilmington, the the coup on this day, 125 years ago. Um, the same day, he writes that Democrats engineered what must surely be one of the few coup d'état in uh, American or coups d'état. I didn't know coup d'états. Anyway. Um, the fusionist leaders of Wilmington city government were not on the ballot, but the democratic insurrectionists were not about to wait until the 1899 municipal election to change the leadership. The Democrats sent a delegation to city hall demanding the resignation of mayor Silas Wright, as well as the fusionist alderman and the police force. Wright at first hesitated when 100 to 200 armed men showed up in City Hall, he and the aldermen resigned and a new city council was sworn into office and a new mayor. The next morning, with the help of soldiers with fixed bayonets, prominent Republicans were rounded up without arrest warrants 
six black Republicans were marched to the train station and put on a northbound train and placed in a special car with a guard under orders to carry them beyond the limits of the state, end quote. That afternoon, a large crowd of Democrats gathered to banish some white Republicans. They, uh, the forced exile of the Republican leaders was followed by a voluntary exodus of more than 2,000 black residents from Wilmington, including many members of the black middle class. Within two years, Wilmington was transformed from a city with a small black majority to a city with a slight white majority. Wilmington would never recover its position as North Carolina's leading city. Up in Washington, the president, McKinley, met with his cabinet to discuss the violence in Wilmington. His secretary of war, Russell Alger, called the events a disgrace to the state and to the country. And he said he would have sent troops to North Carolina if the governor had requested them. McKinley expressed deep concern about the violence, but he chose not to interfere. He felt any action by the federal government would only aggravate the race conflict. Remember, this was only 30 years after the Civil War. You want to send federal troops down to Wilmington in order to try to keep you know, white racist Democrats from, from uh, killing and, and exiling Republicans and blacks again? In the 1890s, the Democrat Party had started to lose its dominance in the state. You had the rise of the Populist Party, and then they formed a coalition with the Republicans. That's where the fusionist term comes from. It wasn't, I don't believe it was an official party. It, it was just a coalition. And they would call themselves fusionists, but they could be populists or Republicans. And that led to Democrats losing control of several major elected offices, including the governorship in 1896, two years before the Wilmington riots, the Wilmington coup. And the name of the paper, again, was the Daily Record. And they burned it to the ground. They murdered dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people. They, they exiled uh, leaders out of the city, some of them out of the state. And Wilmington never recovered. Now, I do wonder how many people are taught that story. And maybe they weren't taught that story for a reason. Yes, racism. But maybe there's another reason, too. Maybe because the, quote, underdogs or the, the, the party that frames itself as the hero or victim, but never the villain, right? They kind of come off sounding like villains. And some of the tactics are still employed today. The movie, the title of which is called In the Pines, um, and if you want to uh, get information about screening it, it's only like 20 minutes, but eventually when it's released, you'll be able to, uh, to access it as well. Uh, it's called inthepinesfilm.com. The movie makers were attacked by a lot of people in media while they were filming down in Wilmington. They were mocked, and leftists on social media were mocking the movie. Why would they mock this movie? Well, because the movie uses the Wilmington riot or the Wilmington coup 
as the backdrop to tell other stories underneath, right? You've got the narrator, as I mentioned earlier, right? She's talking about what happened, but there was also this larger story. There's like a love story in there as well. And they attacked the movie makers for turning the race riot into a love story. That's what they said. As if every single story that is told about terrible events, bad things, right? As if that's all you tell the story about. That's it. No, of course not. Have you ever seen like the blue and the gray, north and the south, right? Those miniseries, all sorts of movies have these, right? They have a story set in a time during a thing, right? They tell people's personal stories because stories are powerful. Stories are really, really powerful. And they connect us to our past, to the things that make us human, right? To empathy. Letting us, you know, think about what it would be like if I was in their shoes or their shoes or whatever. But part of it is also, this is a bit of history that Democrats would prefer you not know. Serving as the propaganda arm of the white supremacy campaign were the state's Democrat newspapers, most notably the News and Observer of Raleigh. The paper was edited by Josephus Daniels, or Josephus, then 36, a former schoolmate and friend of Charles Acock, who was the governor and for whom Democrats named their annual dinners after. I think they made a statue of him up in the Capitol in D.C. Um, who's a member of the Democrat Party's inner ruling circle. The News and Observer circulated through much of eastern North Carolina, the section of the state with the largest black population, where white racial fears were the strongest. Quote, the News and Observer was the printed voice of the campaign, Daniels wrote in his 1941 memoirs. The News and Observer was relied upon to carry the Democratic message and to be the militant voice of white supremacy, and it did not fail in what was expected, sometimes going to extremes in its partisanship. Nearly every day from mid-August until the election, the Raleigh newspaper ran editorial cartoons featuring a white supremacy message at the top of the front page. If the Democrats were going to seize power, they had to intimidate. They had to intimidate tens of thousands of registered black voters. Enter the red shirts. As members of the vigilante organization called themselves, they mainly roamed the counties bordering South Carolina. They attended rallies and disrupted meetings of Republicans and populists and blacks. The red shirts first appeared in South Carolina during Reconstruction. They materialized in North Carolina after South Carolina Senator Benjamin Tillman, Pitchfork Ben. I remember seeing his painting in Tillman Hall at Winthrop. And then hearing, oh, they've got a Tillman Hall at Clemson as well, right? That's the tower, the bell tower. Pitchfork Ben, who supposedly lost one of his eyes to a pitchfork, wielded by one of the slaves that he had, who had attempted to kill him, to run away, right, to get free. Tillman was one of the South's leading racial demagogues. He made a campaign swing through the state of North Carolina. The red shirts then became an intimidating campaign prop, often accompanying Democratic speakers whenever they came into town. Daniels remembered the terrifying spectacle of seeing red shirts accompany Tillman to a rally in Pembroke, North Carolina. Later on, after 
the coup is successful, Governor Aycock defended the mob violence, said it was justified, said they had to do it to preserve the peace, don't you know? We had to go in and massacre people and commit atrocities against people. There is no other way. He said this was not an act of rowdy or lawless men. This was a speech he gave in 1900, so two years later. He says it was the act of merchants, of manufacturers, of railroad men, an act in which every man worthy of the name joined. In fact, business leaders had bankrolled the Democrat campaign in an effort to oust a populist government that the business community leaders thought was a threat to them. As the Charlotte Observer, a pro-business Democrat newspaper, wrote in an editorial, quote, the businessmen of the state are largely responsible for the victory. Not before in years have the, me- have the bank men, the mill men, and the businessmen in general, the backbone of the property interests of the state, taken such sincere interest. They worked from start to finish, and furthermore, they spent large bits of money in behalf of the cause. This is why the 2010 ouster of the Democrats from legislative power in Raleigh, that's why this was such a big deal in the state. And a lot of people who just moved here have no idea. 